again and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast. And today it's Dave coming at you with another interview. And I'm particularly excited about this one because I didn't have to go very far to get my guest on the program here. And I'm very pleased to welcome my musicology colleague at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Dr. Allison DeSimone, who is an associate professor of musicology with specialty in Baroque music. So Allison, welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here, but what am I doing here with my Baroque specialty? <laughs> I know that's the funny thing about this because we're going to talk today. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I'm a music theory professor and I spend most of my time talking about classical music. And I've done a couple podcasts in the past about Beatles classical versions or Paul McCartney's classical music. And I found a funny one or an interesting one uh, This that I, I think our you know, listeners will enjoy knowing more about. And it's called The Baroque Beatles Book. And it was released back in 1965. And we're going to dig into the whole thing here. Uh, but before we even do that, I want to ask, Allison, are you a Beatle fan? I feel like I have a mixed relationship with the Beatles because well, thank I you for love, speaking with me today. And... I will be right. <laughs> Just trying to be honest here. No, yeah. I love I love many of the songs. I, I love their music, but I am not an expert in it. So a lot of the ones that Joshua Rifkin used for this album that aren't this really famous ones. I just really didn't know those songs, so I had to go listen to them. Um, but I have this mixed relationship with them because my mother was such a Beatles fan. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I was growing up, I had to rebel against everything she listened to. So I did, not, I did not get, you know, a, a healthy dose of the Beatles in my childhood. But as an adult, they're, they're amazing. And I loved watching all the, the YouTube videos I watched today in preparation for this. It was really fun. So. Oh, good. Not saying okay. they're not good. I promise. You saved yourself there. That was a good save. <laughs> <laughs> but you brought up something really interesting that we're going to come back to is that this album was released. It was a Christmas album for released at Christmas time, November 1965. And it has a lot of hits in different versions. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it has a lot of more uh, album tracks, things that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you bought the albums. Yeah, and some so of them were gonna... really obscure, it mm -hmm. seemed. Yeah, and I think that'll be something interesting to talk about. So mm -hmm. before we get into the album, I want to ask, so some of our listeners may not know, what is a musicologist? Sure. So a musicologist is someone who studies uh, both music history and music and culture as it sort of appears in culture and society. So for me, I am a musicologist that specializes, as Dave said, in the Baroque period. Um, so the 17th and early 18th centuries, and really my, my main specialty is on early 18th century England. Um, so I talk about in my research and in my teaching, I basically focus on music in society and cultural life of that period. So how music, and sometimes I do talk about the notes, but also uh, there's a healthy balance of sort of historical events and how music engages with different people within those historical events. And so you said you study Baroque music and Baroque uh, for people who've gotten music degrees, you certainly know if you've taken music history that Baroque is one of the style periods that we study in uh, our music history classes. So what, 
what do you how do you describe baroque music and what are its main traits how does it differ from other music the baroque is a really interesting time period and when i teach my classes we focus on three themes of the Baroque in general. So we teach the year between the years 1600 and 1750 approximately. And these three themes that I think you can see throughout the arts, including music, are novelty, control, and theatricality. So Baroque music is lots of different things. There are lots of different genres and styles of this period, but I think that novelty, so newness, new genres kind of appear on the scene. Um, there are new modes of making music during this period. Uh, and then theatricality, there's this extraordinary virtuosity in Baroque music that I think definitely appears on this recording that we're gonna talk about today. Um, but then also control. A lot of Baroque music is really, as you'll also hear in the recording, um, undergirded by forms that really tightly control how this music plays out over a period of time. So there's a lot of tension in that, especially between the virtuosity and the control. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's kind of Baroque musical style for you mm -hmm. in a nutshell. And thinking of some of the famous composers who we might have heard of, uh, certainly J.S. Bach would be one of the biggies for Baroque. Uh, who are some right. other, you mentioned Handel also. Yes, so I am a Handel scholar. Also, we have um, Heinrich Ignaz Bieber von Biebern. Everyone's Ooh, heard of him. No, that's a good kidding. name. <laughs> uh, so if we started the early Baroque, the early 17th century, Claudio Monteverdi is probably the most famous of them all. And I, I think, uh, talking about a mixed relationship. I think Dave here has a mixed relationship with Monteverdi. I do. But he's a wonderful <laughs> composer. Uh, and then kind of going later in the 17th century, we have composers like Arcangelo Corelli and Henry Purcell. And then the early 18th century is when you get those heavy hitters who Dave mentioned. So George Friedrich Handel, uh, J.S. Bach, uh, uh, Georg Telemann, and Antonio Vivaldi, among many, many others. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating is we move towards the, the album is that if you know anything about Baroque music, you're going to catch a lot of references and a lot of kind of in jokes. And I think that's, that's kind of, so if you like Bach, you like Handel, you'll definitely hear things related to both of them and some others that I'm sure you'll talk about. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, are you generally a fan of what we might say a crossover classical rock releases? So kind of those concerts where you, you, know, you like your local symphony orchestra will perform heavy metal Bach or those kinds of crossover <laughs> types of concerts and things. I probably in small doses, yes. I do think that they can get gimmicky when done too frequently. Um, but I also think, you know, I mean, there's some great albums where, you know, a virtuoso accordion player will play Antonio Vivaldi's music or something, you know, I mean, there can be, you can have a lot of fun with it and you can experiment with it. And I always think that's, you know, that's always really fun. There's definitely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, I think the, the guy who is kind of in charge of this album has done a lot of crossover albums. Uh, he did some Scott Joplin. He did some uh, other, other kinds of, mixtures of things and that's joshua rifkin so he is the the conductor the arranger he wrote the liner notes which are quite humorous mm -hmm. uh, he was kind of a one-man show about this who is joshua rifkin and what is he known for 
Sure. So Joshua Rifkin is all of the things you just mentioned. He's a musicologist like me. Um, he is a conductor. He clearly, as we'll talk about with the genesis of this recording, he has experience in the recording industry. He's an early music proponent. Uh, he's a keyboard player, an excellent keyboard player, as you hear on the recording. Um, and he really has kind of done it all, which I love because that's so Baroque of him. I mean, a Baroque, <laughs> a Baroque musician would be able to do all of the things that that, uh, that he does. I think Rifkin is best known in musicology, this is getting really into the weeds here, uh, for being a proponent of one on a part for Bach, performing Bach choral music. So mm. performing the St. Matthew Passion, for example, with only one singer on each vocal part. And so he's um, gotten kind of an interesting reception in musicology for some of those, uh, some of those views uh, I mean, you know, I kind of, I don't take sides on that one. Um, mm -hmm. I think they're, again, experimentation is interesting. Um, but, but yeah, he's done a lot of historical research, but he also clearly has another foot in contemporary musical practice um, and kind of mashing those things up as he mm -hmm. does in this recording, which is cool. Well, and getting into the the origin of this album, it was actually intended for PDQ Bach, or mm -hmm. he was approached first. Uh, and some of our listeners may have heard of PDQ Bach. Uh, I'll, I'll say right off the bat, I saw him as a kid, and I didn't really find it very funny, and I didn't really understand what was going on. So, who is PDQ Bach really related to JS Bach? Uh, alas, well, Peter Shickley <laughs> believes that he is, but yes. <laughs> alas, PDQ Bach is actually kind of a satirical figure invented by the musician Peter Shickley. Um, and I, I feel like, I mean, maybe I actually need to research more into this, but I feel like the 1960s was just this great time for classical music satire, mm -hmm. because that's also when... Um, Oh, gosh. Anna Russell was doing her Wagnerian yeah. <laughs> retellings of Wagner's The Ring Cycle, which are just hilarious. You should mm -hmm. go look those up on YouTube. Um, so PDQ Bach is this fictional composer who kind of comes out of that uh, American classical or classical music satire scene during the, the 1960s. But he, as PDQ Bach, Peter Shickley wrote all of these just really funny parodies of, of different genres of classical music. And uh, yeah, it's well worth a listen if you have time. But I guess Peter Shickley wasn't available to do this Correct. album. Correct. So right? would you say that Rifkin sort of takes up the mantle of PDQ Bach on this album? Definitely on this album. I wouldn't say professionally at all. I, I think Rifkin's work is much more serious uh, in a lot of ways, but definitely on this album. And what just blows my mind is that Rifkin was only 21 years old. Yeah, yeah, I know. I... <laughs> when he got this opportunity. Yeah, and it was, it came, it was an idea by the president of Electra Records named Jack right. Holtzman who got him in and they were a little concerned uh, about the 21 year old Rifkin. They had, it gave him a helper to sort of right. <laughs> to shepherd him along, which he kind of ignored as he says in, in the liner notes. Uh, but what's so funny about this album, not only is the, the cover, first of all, is pretty great because you've got three powdered wigs, wigged men mm -hmm. uh, that look like Baroque, the kind of handle Bach, esque i guess yeah. the two of them certainly are maybe yep. i don't know who, who's the third one is it um it might be vivaldi vivaldi maybe or yeah. i i would assume vivaldi or telemann but it's kind of hard to tell yeah 
and Bach is wearing a t-shirt that says, I like the Beatles, right. uh, which is pretty great. <laughs> you have that t-shirt, don't you? I do. I do. I've got <laughs> It's a big hit. And, and like we said, like PDQ Bach, there's all these little jokes and the way the album is organized and we'll, we'll post all this stuff on the, the links here. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, it's in different parts that seem to represent Baroque forms and styles. So first of all, it says the, the group playing on this is the Baroque ensemble of the Merseyside Kammermusikgesellschaft. So <laughs> Merseyside, every Beatle fan knows that's where the Beatles came from near Liverpool. Kammermusikgesellschaft, right. chamber, music chamber music ensemble. Right. Yeah. And so you've got this kind of group who's playing on this album uh who oh. are the, it's it's actually well that's the funny thing it, it's this was done in about five weeks right and Joshua Rifkin they were able to get all these top-notch baroque classical specialists in New York City Joshua Rifkin went to Juilliard so he knew kind of all the heavy hitters of classical music of New York so uh yes it looks like he hired just kind of anybody who was around and I mean you I guess you had to if he was doing this in record time essentially just anyone who's available uh he had to get but of course Rifkin himself is playing the harpsichord on this album which is pretty exciting so and you can hear him place a couple of solos too mm -hmm. on the album here so I'm looking at the you know the first side one the royal beetle works music mbe 1963 well beetle fans will know that mbe means member of the british empire which is an award the the beatles got and it's done let's take this first little sure. suite here you've got an overture called i want to hold your hand uh réjouissance i'll cry instead la paix uh things we said today and l'amour sans cachant You've got to hide your love away, le plaisir, ticket to ride. So it's a mashup or a mix of these five different songs here. So what what's going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot is going yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say that when you put this album on, whether you're listening to it on as an LP or I did that first and then I listened to it on Spotify, just the opening is so perfect. You will laugh so much <laughs> because it's so Baroque but it's so the Beatles, like it's mm -hmm. all, it really is all there. Um, so just qu some quick background, the movements that Rifkin chose, uh, Overture, Réjouissance, La Paix, and Les Plaisirs are all kind of movements that you would find in a typical um, Baroque orchestral suite of the time. And I think he was even really trying to channel Bach's very famous orchestral suite in D major mm -hmm. um, when he was putting this, uh, these, these movements together. So he really is referencing real Baroque genres and the musical idiom that he's using kind of beyond the melodies themselves is very Baroque. Um, but then you hear I want to hold your hand. Sorry, I can't say, but you know, it's just so funny how, how those melodies kind of come out of the texture. Um, and then you have L'Amour Sans Cachon, which is a, the French translation of you've got to hide your love. <laughs> so he kind of throws that in there, um, 
which is kind of funny. And I'd say that that's probably the movement that's most faithful to the original song mm-hmm. of, of these in the suite, as far as I could tell. Um, it's stylized, but it, it was the most clear to me where the, the melodies were coming from. So Dave, I have a question for you. I'm wondering, so when I was listening to this, I obviously knew Ticket to Ride and I want to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll Cry Instead sounded very familiar to me. But were any of these a little bit more obscure than you thought they would be? Yes, yes. So uh, I want to hold your hand, obviously big hit yeah. and Ticket to Ride, like you said. Uh, this was November 65. So you have a mixture of their early Mm-hmm. material through the help album so you've got right. to hide your love away is on in the help movie and things we said today was a b-side and say i'll cry instead was on the british version of hard day's night it's not in the movie right. but it's it's from 64 so and hold me tight was on their first uh, second album with the beatles so it's kind of a weird mix of the familiar and the non-familiar at least to to fans so i'm curious when you listen to this and i'll I'll give my reaction too but Mm -hmm. do you hear these like how do you hear the source material do do the tunes stick out to you or do you like because at least in my case i had to look at the actual titles to see oh okay he's using things we said today and then i sort of figured it out how how do you like is this just baroque or is it beatles baroque you know what's what's going on to you for me, so across the album, I feel, because I was asking myself that as well, across the album, I feel like it comes and goes. Some are much more obvious than others. Yes. Um, but in this, I would say in this overture suite, uh, these few movements that he has here at the beginning of the album, I think that he's pretty good at hiding these melodies. Like the overture right. itself, I Want to Hold Your Hand is pretty disguised, um, mm-hmm. both in the opening gesture of you know the the very typical french overture double dottedness and sweeping violin lines and then when you get to the fugue you have that you know the little the familiar part of you i want to hold your hand but it gets buried very quickly so that's um it's yeah it's a really interesting way of kind of using the melodies and interweaving them in this very new uh baroque context what what's your reaction well that is exactly mine i think it You, I think in a parody album, you can do it a couple of ways. You can have really hit over the head, obvious tunes that are arranged in a certain way and maybe a different style, like, like a Latin American, I've heard the Latin American Beatles, where it's really mm-hmm. obvious what the song is just right. in a different style. Right. This is, this is much different. This seems to be compositionally, he's approaching it as a Baroque mm-hmm. composer might with using little what we call motives or little mm-hmm. fragments of the melodies and developing and weaving them in and out. And so yeah. do you think in a way this would appeal more to the, this is kind of a summative question, but does this appeal more to a Baroque, like a classical musician or a pop, someone who listens to the Beatles more? I think both, but in different ways. I think for me as more knowing Baroque music probably better than I do the Beatles, I just thought it was pretty good music. Honestly. <laughs> like it was, you know, for someone writing in the 20th century, I was like, yeah, that's pretty good model composition of the Baroque period. But for someone who knows the Beatles, what a fun game to play with yourself, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like it's very engaging to listen to this and really try to pick out, you know, what sounds familiar and what doesn't. So I think, honestly, I think it appeals across the spectrum in that way. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it certainly the the some of the other titles. So after that first little suite, which the Royal Beetle Works music kind of yeah. a spoof <laughs> on the handle, uh, Royal Fireworks. Fireworks music, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Epstein variations. So Brian Epstein, the Beatle manager. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Hold Me Tight is performed by Murray the Clavier Kitzler, or Murray the K was a DJ in New York who was really popular, helping make the Beatles popular. So inside jokes. Uh, and then side two, last night I said, which is from <laughs> Please Please Me. Uh, this is my favorite, actually. And I want you to tell me. Interesting. Yes, I like the cantata. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a little cantata. And so it says cantata for the third Saturday after the Shea Stadium, MBE 58,000. Well, that refers to the Beatles' performance at Shea Stadium, and there right. were 50, 50 something thousand people there. So tell me what's going on here. We have it's the first one with text and with singing. Right. right. So a help and tenor. Yes, a help and tenor. <laughs> I know. I was actually, I actually Googled that because I was like, I hope I. Like, I guess this is a joke, I think, but, but then I had to look up the word jorking too. And Uh I had no idea what that was referring to. So I'll need your help with that one. (laughs) So that is actually, yes. So it starts out with a, uh, there's the chorus. It's kind of a a fugal thing on last night. I said from please, please me, the first words of please, please me. Mm -hmm. And then a recitative, you can maybe tell what that is, but in they, came jorking uh is a quote or uh, it's a reading from john lennon's book uh he wrote two okay. books of of prose and just poems and witticisms and things so it's actually john lennon's own text okay great not, i'm not a glad, song. glad to know that because i even looked up that word in the oxford english dictionary and oh, it's not wow. in there so. no i think it's a john lennon invention <laughs> okay good so yeah. i was very confused so so yeah so as dave said um we have this cantata and I, I think it's very clever. I will say, and I guess I'm not surprised because sometimes Dave and I have opposing opinions on <laughs> musical taste and style in terms yes. of what we like. This is probably my least favorite <gasps> of the whole album, Ooh. but I do appreciate it. Like, I think it's very funny. Um, so a cantata is basically a short, it, like in the 18th century, Uh, what Rifkin is spoofing here, a cantata is a short, almost mini opera, but it's sacred. It's very dramatic. It would not have been staged or anything during um, the 18th century, but it is very dramatic. And it often includes a mixture of chorus and recitative, which is more speech-like narrative singing, and then aria, which is more song-like singing. Uh, And then Bach's cantatas, his Lutheran cantatas, always ended with a chorale, which this one does too, which is basically four-part harmony singing in Bach's day, the words of Luther kind of summarizing the meaning and the spirit of the cantata for the day of worship that it was composed for. Um, And Rifkin does that here. It's it's a little shorter than Bach probably would have done it. We're missing an aria or two, but um, (laughs) as Dave said, we open with this chorus, um, which is, I mean, we have an orchestral refrain that comes back. Yes, a ritornello, I believe. Ritornello, yep. And we have the the vocal statements, so the voices all sing, then the orchestra plays a little bit, the voices sing again. Um, And then the recitative, I think, must be text from John Lennon. Mm Okay, mm-hmm. that makes much yes. more sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I loved it. I thought I do think it's so Bachian. It's such yeah. a Bachian yeah. recitative, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. harmonically speaking. Exactly. Yeah, and that's why I think it maybe as well. 
so Allison is a handle person. I'm a Bach person. So that's why I, I probably move towards this, but uh, right. still it is clever. And it, you'll, as a Beatle fan, when you hear him, the aria, when I was younger, well, we know what that is yes. from it's the help text. Uh, I think it's very clever. And then he, the, the chorale is based on I'll be back because the text is, you know, if you break my heart also from the hard days night album. So uh, pretty, pretty clever. And I hear lots of these techniques. You mentioned fugue earlier, mm -hmm. uh, chorale inversion, augmentation. What, what is a fugue? Because I hear lots of little fugal things in canon, maybe fugue and canon or counterpoint. Yeah, that's a hard oh, one. Oh, to... I have to explain this to a music theorist. Uh oh. Well, no. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to get it wrong or whatever. But um, a, a fugue is a uh, a compositional technique whereby a melody is essentially repeated in full throughout the composition in multiple different voices, kind of subsequently. And then often between those statements of this melody, which becomes more and more familiar as you hear it in all of the voices throughout the composition, uh, in between those statements, there are what we call episodes, so kind of moments where uh, each of the voices goes off and kind of does its own thing before coming back to this very familiar melody. But it's a very clever uh, way of structuring music. Um, and Rifkin uses it throughout. He uses it in the first side in the Royal Beatle Works music, and he uses <laughs> it in the cantata uh, as well. Um, yeah, but he also, I mean, there are so many other Baroque techniques, lots of like melismas, melismatic singing, which is where you sing uh, multiple notes to one syllable. You'll hear that a lot, mm -hmm. for example, in the tenor aria when I was younger, mm -hmm. which is very, and I loved where he put them. I thought they were, because they're not in the original. The Beatles would never sing like that. No, no, no. <laughs> but really? I thought I thought they worked really well uh, where he put them in the aria. I thought that was really, really fun. And then I think there were some good circle of fifths progressions in there too. There were, I know, I know. Also a Baroque harmonic technique mm -hmm. that you hear a lot. Actually the song, uh, You Never Give Me Your Money, from uh, Abbey Road is based mm -hmm. on a, a circle of fifths. So the Beatles used it too, uh, even in their own music. So this clever melding of mm -hmm. techniques of forms. And then I think like the fugal parts is where everything's building and it may mm -hmm. make kind of a tension uh, yeah. builder as well. Uh, Absolutely. I forgot, I forgot to mention you, you mentioned how Rifkin plays the harpsichord and on the Epstein variations, I believe he, yes. he is the clavier Kitzler. Uh, <laughs> so, so variations, what, what happens in a variation set? Yes. So usually? a variation set, um, which I want to say variations, they were very prominent in the very early Baroque, but even the late Renaissance amongst keyboard players. And then they kind of fade out a little bit. People, people are writing them here and there, but then they kind of roar back to life in the 18th century. And Rifkin clearly enjoys Bach's very famous <laughs> Goldberg variations, yep. <laughs> because those are quoted extensively uh, in on this album and in the here in the Epstein variations. But a variation set is where you have a melody, uh, at least in this case, a melody. And the first, you state it in full, you play it in full at the beginning. And then every variation changes the melody in some way. Um, it could be through different kinds of figuration, different rhythms, um, maybe a different harmony underneath. Sometimes there's a major to minor switch mm. that goes on in a variation set. 
Um, and in the Baroque, especially, composers love to use variation sets to show off their increasing virtuosity as they go along. So back to virtuosity. Right. Again. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's always there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you'll have the first couple of variations might not be that hard, but by the end, it's just this exuberant explosion of virtuosity, <laughs> uh, which happens. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very exciting to listen to it. So yeah. that's that's a fun uh, fun example. And yeah. then the album finishes with something called a trio sonata, mm -hmm. das Kafferlein, and uh, you have two tracks here. You've got a grave, allegro grave on eight days a week, mm -hmm. and then this crazy word, uh, quodlibet, uh, and there's three songs listed, She Loves You, Thank You Girl, and Hard Day's Night. So what's going on in this trio sonata at the end? Yeah, so the trio sonata was a genre that really grew into its own in the late 17th century. Um, and it was really, it was a, a short instrumental work for two treble instruments, often two violins. But as you can hear on this album, I think it was oboe and violin playing mm -hmm. the two treble Yeah, it was parts. a wind instrument. Right. And then, uh, and then a cello or some kind of low stringed instrument, and then a harpsichord as well. Um, and they would generally just play these kind of, as, as Dave read out loud, grave, allegro, grave, or just tempo designations, really. They're not much more than that. Um, but what I thought was, I mean, eight days a week, I thought this was one where the, it was very clear what melody they were yes. borrowing, and it yes. always stuck out to me. Um, but I liked how the grave, the slower part of the trio sonata, uh, or the first movement of this uh, was that first stanza. And then the allegro when it speeds up is the the kind of the chorus, right? Hold me, love me. Like it <laughs> yeah, was very, yeah. <laughs> very, very clever. Um, and then a quad libet simply means a medley. Really, that's all it is. But again, Rifkin is hearkening back to the great master, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, who wrote a very, very famous quad libet uh, for the end of the Goldberg variations uh, for harpsichord. Um, Actually, Peter Shickley wrote a quote bit too. I don't know where that oh, falls in the timeline, but um, oh. yeah. So this is a popular way of satirizing. And I mean, even though the uh, the song "She Loves You, Thank You, Girl" and "Hard Day's Night" are in the title, all I hear is Goldberg variations. Yeah, it doesn't. I, it's hard to discern them. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you said that too because I was yeah. like, I don't can't hear them. <laughs> no, that was when I was looking at the record to see, oh, okay, I guess I heard a little bit of Thank right. You Girl, or I think I sort of heard the chorus of Hard Day's Night. Yeah, so very hidden on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I had some questions for you. And one of okay. my questions is about the texts or the songs that Rifkin chose meeting the emotional content of how he sets them to music. Mm. This was very interesting to me because in the Baroque, one of the, the big hallmarks of the Baroque period is about moving the audience's emotions. And so I expected, especially going back to this opening Royal, Royal Beetleworks music, <laughs> there's a movement called Réjouissance, which means rejoicing, festivities. Mm -hmm. But the song he chose to set to that is I'll cry instead, which is like pretty depressing. <laughs> yeah, I've got every reason on earth to be mad. I've just lost the only girl I've had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the song is upbeat, so yeah, I, I guess maybe is. that's why he chose it. But I was wondering, um, from your perspective as a Beatles specialist and connoisseur, do you think Rifkin was trying to match lyrics with how he set them to music, or was that completely mm. separate? I 
get the impression that the text is really secondary here. Okay. I have a feeling that he liked the melodies uh, because one of the things I was thinking about is why does the Beatles music work pretty well? I, I think mm. we both would say this album works well. We'll, we'll yeah. get your reaction, mm. but why does it work well? And I think the text, apart from the cantata, because the rest of it's instrumental, I think the text is really secondary here. Okay, And he's trying to find melodic connections. So you've got I want to hold your hand and I'll cry instead are both in the same key True. in their original. So maybe that's something, or maybe he's trying to find musical, more musical connections. Uh, Cause I, yeah, I, I definitely thought that the text or trying to read into it was secondary to, yeah. Oh, this is a good melody and it's recognizable. Right. And if it just happens to have text that goes with it. Great. Well, I am a musicologist, so I love reading into things. That's know, probably why my mind went there immediately. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, because that makes a lot of sense. Why did he choose particular songs for these particular forms or genres? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, as a Baroque music scholar, what interests you most about the album or what did you find most interesting listening to it? One of the things I found interesting was playing the game of just trying to recognize the song. <laughs> Name that tune. Name that yeah. tune. And what I found, I mean, I'm going to be a real dork here, but what I found interesting is the composers and musicians have been playing that game all the way back to the Middle Ages and beyond in Western music, even in the Renaissance. You know, we have techniques where composers will take popular melodies and set them in these larger sacred works just to see if people can recognize those fun, popular melodies. <laughs> so to me, it was kind of playing, you know, it was fun playing that game, even though I don't think I was very good at it. Some <laughs> no, of them I, I was cheat. good at. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think the other, the other one was just hearing, hearing Baroque music from a 20th century perspective in the sense, not like an early music ensemble playing Baroque music, but rather if we were still writing in the stylistic idiom today, what would it mm. sound like? Mm -hmm. And there are moments, again, I, I keep going back to the um, opening suite, but there are moments in that suite that are strange harmonic moments. You would yes. not hear them in Baroque music. There's one in Réjouissance and I think one in La Paix, but, but those moments make the music so much more interesting to me because are they like more Beatles than Baroque? yes much yeah. more Beatles than Baroque just things mm -hmm. you would not hear in 18th century harmonic practice <laughs> no definitely coming from pop music in the 20th century but uh what a what an interesting hearing listening experience to mm -hmm. hear again those two harmonies sometimes working together and sometimes really working against each other is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating to think about the harmonically. Uh, one reason I was reading a review of this from, I don't know where, but the author was saying the Beatles music works well because unlike the Rolling Stones, let's say, who are really blues based, mm -hmm. the Beatles music is not blues based, it's more modal based. Right. And so it doesn't have those kind of jarring blue notes and things like mm -hmm. that and it and the songs he chose fit that well but but still it's popular music harmony so it's not right. going to be exactly like Bach or Handel or Telemann or something right. so you get those little moments and especially I'll cry instead yeah it mm -hmm. has you hear the 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 <laughs> it made me laugh I think the <laughs> oboe plays the the lick from the song yes, it's yes, very it funny does. it, it just sticks out I started laughing I was walking taking a walk listening to it and just started people with probably thought I was a crazy person, but 
Uh, it was very funny. So, uh, so I'm curious, this is a, ver this was actually a popular album and, mm -hmm. you know, anything with the Beatle name on it is, is almost gold for making money and becoming popular. But why do you think this, it actually hit the charts pretty high on the charts. Why do you think it was popular? That's a really great question. I mean, I think timing has a lot to do with it. The 1960s were a moment where Baroque music, early music was kind of roaring back into public consciousness. Uh, it's the time when some of the biggest early music groups were being formed. Baroque music started to be performed with what they called sort of historical authenticity. So using original instruments from the time period and doing scholarly research into how to perform this music. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. I mean, I think, mm. I think Baroque music was a part in some ways, maybe a part of a, a particular zeitgeist. Mm. And of course the Beatles were the zeitgeist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, this probably caught brilliantly a cross-section of an audience oh, that would yeah. really that would really appreciate uh both of these things together but again i i don't know maybe i'm making too much of it but i also think it's really is a fun musical game and i <laughs> i tested that with my mom because i oh. said i told her to listen to this mm -hmm. i said i know you don't like classical music but i think you'll like this album <laughs> and she did she thought she it did. was really funny oh. so again i i think it's i think it's really enjoyable even if you're not a classical music person just to play the game. <laughs> well, that's a perfect segue to my final question was, uh, as I said, I'm going to put the link to YouTube or Spotify so people can listen to this, but what would you recommend a listener focus on when hearing this album? How should they listen to this? Oh, such a good question, because I would probably listen differently. Um, if you listen to this album, let's say you listen to it twice through, Definitely listen for the melodies first and foremost, the ones that you recognize. But on the second listening, think about the virtuosity at play, because I think that's really hearable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are the instruments doing that sound difficult or really, really impressive? And then how did the Beatles come out of that? I think that would be uh, another interesting way to tackle it. It's kind of funny how, how there's a story, I don't know if it was in the liner notes, but how the how Jack Holtzman, the head of Electra, ended up getting an autographed copy of right. something from Paul McCartney and Joshua <laughs> Riffin got nothing and didn't get to meet the Beatles or didn't, didn't even have get any... to meet the Beatles. No, no. So here he's helping bring their music to a different audience. And right. it's not too it's... late though. No, they're that's both true. Still, he's alive. still alive. He, that's he true. Could both be still Paul. alive. Yeah. <laughs> or Ringo. <laughs> exactly. I know that would be great. So <laughs> Maybe well, you can have them both on your podcast someday, Dave. Hey, that's right. Professor Rifkin and Paul McCartney, if you're listening, just contact me. I've got a Beatles podcast at hotmail.com. We'll take care of go. it. Perfect. Uh, so any uh, final thoughts on, uh, on this album or... Yes, I had actually, I had one more question for you as since you're a, a music theorist, of course, you know that music theory is more than just harmony or melody mm -hmm. one of the things that i love about the beatles isn't just their melodies of course they're very catchy but it's also like their timbre there's yes. something else about their music that really stands out and you don't get that in this album so i'm kind of wondering what you think like what do we do we lose anything from the beatles when it's reworked in this format it's not the beatles anymore i guess no no it's really definitely. what it comes down to 
but no and that's a that's an important point is the most people don't listen and like the beatles because of the harmony they like it because of the the sound the overall timbral sound the way it was recorded the instruments the how it was all put together their voices are a huge part of it right. and in this album you don't have that you you're kind of taking the the raw source material of the beatles which is the the melodic you know its melodies and some of the harmonies so you're getting kind of the musical right. elements but yeah you do sort of lose what what we like about the beatles but on the other hand it can make something different when it's joined together with the classical side and you see how transferable in some ways music is and it's it's not stuck to one genre uh, and 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 like we've talked about the playing the name that tune mm -hmm. can be really funny and it kind of makes you hear things in a fresh way especially yeah. because i've heard you know i've heard these songs so many times in my life but not right. in this way and right. so right. you pick up things like oh i guess that melody does kind of work well that way and played by the trumpet or whatever yeah so, that's true thank yeah. you yeah so pretty interesting so uh, we both give this a thumbs up absolutely two thumbs up i love it thumbs up excellent <laughs> <laughs> well allison thank you so much for speaking with me uh, it's been very fun to dig into the baroque beatles book and uh yes. yeah, if if you know of any other beetle baroque or popular even pop music baroque stylings like this that you like just let me know and i'll i'll post them as well Absolutely. I think there were other versions of this too, like uh, people copying Rifkin mm. and trying to do these mashups. So I'll, I'll investigate and uh, maybe we can do another podcast at some point. That would be very depending fun. Depending on what we find. But thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. It's been great. So thanks again for listening. And I will be back with Chris on our next episode. So thanks again.